Welcome to CSIS Events from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, bringing you the best events each week from the world's number one international security think tank. To explore the hundreds of events we host each year, please visit us at CSIS.org. Good morning. My name is Melissa Dalton, and I direct the Cooperative Defense Project here at CSIS. Thanks so much for joining us for the first part of a a two-part virtual event on pursuing effective and conflict-aware stabilization. This is a joint initiative between the Cooperative Defense Project and the Project on Prosperity on Development, made possible by the generous support of Commodics International. It's been a year since the Trump administration published its Stabilization Assistance Review Framework, and its principles are more relevant now more than ever. Today's discussion will feature the launch of a new CSIS policy brief that features lessons from beyond the Beltway, findings from field research that my team and I have been doing in Colombia and Lebanon to illuminate how stabilization assistance review principles are playing out in practice. Today's discussion, discussion with three experts will focus on how SAR principles and the Bipartisan Global Fragility Act can provide frameworks to inform integrated partnership-driven approaches to stabilization. I wanna remind all of our viewers that this is an interactive virtual event. You are able to submit questions as the event is going on and they will be answered on our May 12th question and answer event with all of the same speakers. We'll be bringing them back for that. I encourage all of you to go to our event page on www.csis.org and click on the Ask Questions Here button to submit your questions. You will also be able to return to this event page during the week between this event and the May 12th event to ask any other questions you have. I'm delighted to welcome three experts from across the stabilization community to join us this morning. We have Liz Hume, who's the Vice President at the Alliance for Peacebuilding. She is a conflict expert and has more than 20 years of experience in senior leadership positions in bilateral, multilateral institutions and NGOs. We also have Michelle Piercy, who is the Technical Director for Stability and Transition at Commodics International. She is an international development practitioner with 17 years of experience, including 10 years, working on political transition and counter-violent extremism programs in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Tunisia. And we also have Etan Sontag, a senior advisor in the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations at the US Department of State, where he has worked for 17 years. His current areas of focus include stabilization policy, field-based programs, and implementation of diplomatic and civilian military initiatives in conflict zones. Really looking forward to a robust conversation today. Um, we are going to start off with a question actually to everyone um, that is, is kind of the, the $10 million question. Um, when thinking about concepts like stability and resilience um, that are often um, discussed in Washington policy circles to frame our objectives in conflict areas. Um, they, they are often the, the core objective that we are trying to achieve. 
But a lot of times when, you th when we think about uh, the, the partner context, the countries in which we are operating, uh, these, these terms don't necessarily hold up or they have different interpretations or perceptions of, of what they mean. If you think about how, for example, local leaders and popular movements might actually resist these conceptions because they're tied to a notion of a predatory or corrupt or outdated status quo. I'd like to ask all of our speakers to uh, provide some recommendations on how you think the United States can nest these, these types of stabilization objectives tied to concepts of stability and resilience within a political strategy when there are differing views of stability and resilience across elites and, and local leaders. Let's go to Etan first. Thank you so much. Um, and let me just uh, first start, Melissa, by uh, thanking you and your colleagues at CSIS for hosting this event um, and for your broader partnership on um, thinking through some of the challenges, um, recommendations, best practices uh, around addressing issues of stability and, and fragility. Um, so maybe I can just start by differentiating slightly the two terms that you just mentioned, stabilization and resilience, um, in terms of how we think about them a bit uh, inside of the US government. Um, I don't wanna dwell on definitions, but I think it's important to have a common set of expectations as to what we're describing and what we are trying to achieve. So um, as stabilization is defined in the Stabilization Assistance Review, it's an inherently political endeavor that involves um, an integrated civilian and military effort that um, seeks to create conditions where there are locally legitimate authorities and systems that can manage conflict peaceably. Um, stabilization, it's important to note, is transitional in nature, not open-ended. Um, it may include things like establishing basic security, providing access to dispute resolution mechanisms, uh, delivering targeted basic services um, and establishing a foundation um, for the return of displaced persons and then uh, of course longer term development. So that's that's the context in, in which we see stabilization. On resilience um, and, and uh, this this event comes at a timely moment because we've been um, having some internal discussions inside of the US government to help put some parameters around these kind of, of terms. And we um, recently came to agreement um, after conversations in the interagency and with the National Security Council, one of those terms is resilience, which we, um, which we refer to as, as sort of the efforts that strengthen the ability of people's households, communities um, to mitigate and adapt to and recover from shocks and stresses in a manner that reduces chronic vulnerability and it also facilitates inclusive growth. So improving resilience to conflict may be a longer term endeavor uh, than stabilization, um, but it certainly includes a focus on building confidence in local institutions and locally legitimate uh, conflict resolution mechanisms. Um, I would say that the foundation for both stabilization and resilience building is ultimately, the cornerstone is ultimately sound, locally validated, locally driven analysis. Um, and an integral part of, of that process involves mapping out the key actors and the key power dynamics 
as well as trying to understand what are the underlying structural risks of, of conflict. Now, one of the lessons learned, I think, in the SAR is this risk of inherently um, freezing a conflict, stabilizing, stabilizing a conflict where the, the embers of, uh, of what is driving um, and fueling grievances uh, and violence continues to smolder without addressing them. And so um, what we've tried to put front and center in our stabilization approach is that um, even as we seek to reduce violence, we need to simultaneously be cognizant of and addressing the root causes of what, what, is, um, what is driving violence. Um, I think you know, another core principle um, within the stabilization assistance review is this emphasis on um, not just the locally driven analysis, but locally owned uh, and locally led solutions. Um, you know, we acknowledge that um, the US as well as our partners can help catalyze, we can help support uh, ultimately initiatives uh, that reduce violence or conflict, but we're not necessarily in a position to enforce those conditions over the long term. So this underscores the the sort of the centrality of burden sharing with our partners that also have access, uh, have credibility and have influence. So um, to, to come uh, to your question again about uh, this tension um, between um, you know, where elites may stand in a conflict and a status quo that may not be acceptable to broader swaths of society, um, I think the way that we've often um, conceptualized our approach is to take both a bottom-up and, and top-down action, meaning that we acknowledge the realities of having to engage with certain elites um, uh, and certain um, centers of gravity when it comes to power uh, in, in a conflict environment, but also that there's a real um, uh, imperative to engage at the community level and with those uh, individuals and segments of society that are, that are most impacted by conflict. Um, and in this regard, I think uh, we don't have time to go into it necessarily here, but I would really commend the work of, um, of many of our partners, including the UK Stabilization Unit, which has done um, some, some very good um, academic uh, and research on the role of elites in um, creating an elite bargains in terms of stabilizing um, conflicts. Um, and so maybe with that, I'll just leave it there and then we can come back uh, to, to dive into it a little bit more um, when we get to question and answer. Terrific, that was uh, a great opening um, to this very big question. So thanks so much for that. Next, let's go to Liz Hume for the, from the Alliance for Peace Building. Hi, good morning. And I also really wanna thank Comonix and CSIS for the work that you've been doing over the last year and longer on really understanding how to implement the SAR and best practices, um, whether it's the Global Fragility Act or the SAR, uh, they are only words on a paper if they're not successfully implemented. So I congratulate you and thank you so much um, for all the work that you've been doing on this. Um, you know, I start off by saying, don't be a purist on terms. I actually don't care what you call half these things. Uh, you know, I go back to uh, CVE, for example, under the previous administration, we spent so much time fighting over, is it countering, is it preventing, uh, you know, get to the 
get to the root of the, get to the problem. What is the problem we're trying to solve and how best to do it? Now I understand we need shared language and that's really important, but I think our field, whether it is on conflict sensitivity uh, or CVE, we have been too much of a purist on terms. Uh, and I also just give you a short story um, going back into 2017, when I talked with one of the state department officials on calling it stabilization, you know, the first thing I did is have a visceral reaction going back to Afghanistan, okay. uh, you know, early 2000s and what that word meant. And, you know, we talked about it and said, let's not get hung up on the term. Let's discuss the how and the principles and what we're trying to agree upon. Uh, and it's the same thing with the Global Fragility Act. You know, if I had my way, we would have called it and it originally was violence reduction. That's what we were talking about. That's what we wanted to do. You know, fragility was more palatable to people and that was fine with me. <laughs> I, again, I don't care about the term. I care about the, the principles and the how you actually do that. Um, so I think that that's, um, that's you know, I, I kind of just like to get that out on the table. Um, Itan, you said a really important point and it's legitimate. Uh, how many times have we gone into countries and I call them the we like you parties, the we like you NGOs, uh, you know, you speak, you know, the English is you know, phenomenal, uh, you know, they say the right things, they're educated in the West, uh, they, uh, you know, for example, in Ethiopia under the former government, uh, they went into, they were working in Somalia. So we allow a lot of things to happen, whether it's closing a civil society space, cracking down on human rights abuses or cracking down on human rights. Um, so really legitimate is important. And I think that's one of the most important issues that comes out of the SAR. The SAR and the GFA were not done also in silos. Uh, you know, everyone who was working on these, uh, whether it's the SAR or the GFA, were discussing all of these issues constantly. And I see the GFA, I'm sorry, the SAR, it's, it's one of the ways you implement the GFA. And it's really around the diplomacy. The GFA is not about just more programs and more resources. Without that diplomatic, that um, the the diplomacy piece, the understanding, the legitimacy of governments, it, it's just, that's all it is then. It's just more programs and more resources. And that's, that's not the point of the SAR and that's not the point of the GFA. And that I think is a really um, one of the key points. Also understanding why these, you know, whether it's the SAR or the GFA came about. They came about because we need to work better. And they came about because of what happened in Afghanistan and Iraq. Th those were big driving points to both of these documents. And we, and, and you know, even looking at the COVID strategy today, um, it, it's about applying these principles. And even within the COVID strategy from state and aid today, we haven't applied SAR or uh, GFA principles. You know, if you look at that, the strategy and the four pillars, you have, you know, pillar one, protecting interests of the U.S. government, pillar two, health, pillar three, humanitarian assistance, and pillar four, it's everything. It's economic, it's, uh, 
conflict prevention, stability as a secondary factor. Uh, so that's what's so important to me is talking about the how and, and how we do it, not so much the terminology. So I'll leave it at that. Great. Thanks so much, Liz. That's terrific. Um, let's go next to Michelle Piercy from Comonics. Can you hear me? Okay, great. I, um, I want to join in, I guess, with thanking CSIS so much for their partnership and leadership on um, the two years that we've spent working with you. I've mostly been in the field, but my colleagues have had nothing but great things to say about the leadership that you've shown uh, as we've tried to figure out what the review really means for us. As implementers, we really are the end users of policy. And so figuring out how to operationalize it, how to make it meaningful, how to get people on the same page is really so valuable. So thank you very much for that and also for convening this event. Um, you saw me nodding a lot during Liz's um, initial answer. It's because I'm so strongly of the same view that, you know, really what's in a name at times. And uh, I was around for um, really my first rodeo was Iraq. Um, post-Saddam Iraq. So we've called it a lot of different things and uh, getting on the same page about definitions, having a shared language, very important, obviously, but uh, for us, really the how um, and the why is, is really where the opportunity is for us to work together. So um, thinking about you know, my recommendations, specifically in response to your question, um, Sure, this is a political endeavor, absolutely. One of my, uh, one of my big takeaways from, from my time in the field has just definitely been that we should avoid politicizing our stability objectives, however political our endeavor is. Um, and I would give the example of, um, it's a post-Saddam Iraq, where um, at times I would find, although we were all notionally engaged in stabilization, at times that could get pretty ideological and pretty politicized. And the local populations that we're working with, they're, they're aware of this. And it can be at times a real challenge to back away from those preconceptions about what external um, agendas might be driving our interventions. Um, in addition, I would say that there's absolutely no need for uh, us to, we need not and we should not be working uh, towards business as usual. That's not what stabilization is. Frequently, that's a misunderstanding. Um, but as we know, business as usual often had underlying grievance, horizontal inequality, certain kinds of injustice um, that nobody wants to return to. And so when we're talking about what stabilization means, um, we wanna make clear that this is about coming up with a new model or a new paradigm for a post-conflict uh, community. And that means what? It means having clear, shared, realistic goals, not just us as the implementers, but everybody all the way up to the policy level and realistic and measurable um, uh, outcomes so that we know that we're all on the same page. Um, and that's really one of the opportunities that I see in the SAR. This, um, my third point is really, and this for me is the big one, is that we wanna be broad and flexible in our understanding of what stability really means uh, at a community level. Um, and we really wanna focus on what matters. And to me, what matters is that um, communities that we're working in have 
the confidence and the predictability in their environments that they can get on with their lives. And to build a little bit on what Etan said, um, confidence and predictability, get on with your life so that you can get back on the path to normal development. Work with your leaders to address problems. Um, and I think there, there are some smart ways of designing those programs so that they are highly context specific, so that they are responsive to the local conditions, yet they're under the umbrella of a unified um, stabilization program that is broadly true for the whole country. Another thing, and this, is, this gets back to terminology, but here I will be, Liz, a purist on terminology, um, because we conflate security and, sta and stabilization and stability all the time. We're doing it now, even a year plus since the release of the, of the review. We do it in our own literature. Um, and I think that's harmful for a couple of reasons. One is that we find ourselves uh, assuming that the stabilization phase and the security phase are the same. They are not the same. And that is a dangerous assumption that frankly we had to grapple with in Afghanistan repeatedly. Um, and more to the point, uh, particularly if you're a non-native English speaker, um, you'll get really good potential partners in the field who are good grassroots organizations, not people we like. Well, I mean, we like them, Liz, but you know what I'm saying? Um, who could be a partner in, st in stability who will say, we don't wanna get involved in stabilization. But if you reframe it for them and say, um, do you wanna get involved in facilitating linkages between community and local government? Do you wanna get involved in um, helping youth make a more meaningful contribution to a political process? The answer to that is usually an emphatic yes. So from that point of view, I think we need to really attend to those, um, to those meetings and also know that in the field in particular, um, words matter. And finally, I will talk about legitimacy too, because it's it's in the SAR, but it's also in virtually every definition of, sta of stabilization. There's something to do with what is legitimate. And the point that I really wanna make is legitimacy in a post-conflict context. Um, legitimacy is what local people say it is and nothing else. So uh, as a result, we wanna be sure that um, political, security, stabilization objectives do not conflict, but also accept the reality that um, in a conflict situation, there will be actors um, and groups present who um, are either passively or um, intentionally uh, not aligned with US interests. And so sometimes the only possible solution there is to step back but uh, realize that we need to avoid reinforcing those actors without hoping to use a stabilization program to achieve that kind of influence. I think that's about it for my, for my answer. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Michelle, and to all three of you um, for that excellent overview. And I, I do think this question of legit legitimacy is so central um, and fascinating to look at, particularly as you see actors like Russia and Iran um, manipulating um, the information space. And so what does legitimacy actually mean when you have those actors in play introducing um, doubt uh, about uh, the legitimacy of, of core institutions and the partners um, that, that we're wanting to engage. So definitely a space to, to watch going forward. 
Um, I want to turn back to Itan um, Sontag, who's been um, really central to implementing the Stabilization Assistance Review Framework at the Department of, of State. Itan, can you talk to us about what are the next steps um, for implementing the SAR? It came out in, in 2018. Um, know that there's been some great work um, going on in the interagency and reaching out to some test cases in, in embassies in the field. Um, but what are the next steps that you see, you know, in the next six to 12 months? And how do you see that intersecting now the bipartisan Global Fragility Act um, that the government also now needs to implement? Good, great, thanks. Um, thanks for the question, Melissa. And um, let me also just say that uh, I appreciate the, the insights um, that both uh, Michelle and Liz um, offered, um, which uh, were articulated far more succinctly than, than I could have hoped to, but I, 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 I concur fully with uh, those core points. Um, with regard to the SAR, let me, let me just uh, catch maybe folks up that haven't been following it so closely. Um, as you said, the um, Stabilization Assistance Review um, was approved um, by the Department of State, USAID, and Department of Defense um, in 2018. Uh, since then, we had nearly a dozen U.S. embassies uh, that were asked to develop um, whole-of-government strategies to address uh, the stabilization challenges uh, in those respective countries, um, mainstreaming the principles um, that were laid out in the, in the SAR. Now, most of those strategies uh, were wrapped up or concluded um, by December of last year, December of 2019. Now, just to be clear, um, it's not as if we were starting from square one on stabilization. Um, all of these embassies were already engaged in promoting stabilization. Um, the purpose here was really to help create a more coherent um, strategy development process that would allow us to take a look and ask the question um, whether our programs and the other tools that we have, whether that's something like military to military assistance, um, were in fact aligned um, with the political goals and the stabilization objectives that we said that we wanted to achieve. And whether in fact those objectives uh, were realistic and measurable, um, I think as, as Liz uh, and both Michelle pointed out to. Now, um, one of the recurring challenges um, that I think many of our posts identified um, was not necessarily that we needed more programs uh, to Liz's point, but that we needed additional staff, we needed additional mobility, we needed additional access. And so in response to that, um, one of the developments over the course of the last um, three or four months is that we've deployed stabilization advisors to a number of countries um, Somalia, Central African Republic, and Niger being three. Um, those individuals are back in DC at the moment due to um, the pandemic um, and due to a shrinking of, of some of our embassy staff. Um, but in the meantime, they're continuing to work with our country teams, particularly as we set our sights on the next benchmark, which is um, a summertime check-in with these embassies to assess progress and changes uh, in their strategies. This is a, a biannual requirement. Um, and I think one point I should emphasize is that um, these stabilization strategies, which are one component of a, of a broader strategy that every embassy has vis-a-vis -vis, um, its host country, 
is that they're meant to be completely dynamic. Um, I think it's it's important to note for for everyone that's worked uh, as I as I have and and uh, colleagues here on the call have in these environments is that they tend to be highly fluid, very um, uh, in certain cases volatile. Um, political coalitions change can change quickly, and therefore stabilization and conflict dynamics change quickly. And as a result, we need to have planning processes and strategies that can also adapt and be nimble enough. Uh, to conform with the new realities. So um, with regard to the monitoring and evaluation, we have um, sort of along the lines of the SAR model that we developed, pulling in um, uh, experts from USAID and the Department of Defense. We now have a working group that is bringing together uh, monitoring and evaluation specialists um, from those three agencies to help um, facilitate structured strategic reviews of our collective stabilization efforts, um, all oriented toward this question around whether um, we are moving the needle collectively um, and getting closer, is the trend line going closer toward those political goals that we've set out? Not, is this program specifically working? Are the outputs or are the outcomes those that we had envisaged? But what is it all adding up to? Um, so that's the next near-term goal, um, which we hope to um, we hope to sort of uh, concretize uh, this coming summer. Um, I just want to come back to one or two other points um, to sort of underscore them uh, that our colleagues on the line here um, have mentioned, and that is that um, I've said SAR is as much about changing our business practices and our modalities of um, of interacting as a US government, but also with our partners and our habits, as it is a collection of best practices, uh, lessons learned and principles. So um, that's going to take time. Uh, we acknowledge that given that um, many of these stabilization strategies were really finalized sort of toward the end of last year. And now, uh, you know, to be completely frank, um, you know, we're also grappling with the impacts of COVID and what that means as far as um, the bandwidth at our posts, the ability to implement and oversee programs, et cetera. Um, you know, we think we just have to be realistic about the length of time that it's going to take to be able to see the, the tangible impacts of these new uh, modalities of work. Now, one thing that's promising is that um, uh, we've um, tried to amplify where there have been um, what we consider to be, um, you know, sort of best practices at certain embassies where they have integrated groups that bring the Department of Defense, that bring maybe the Department of Ju Justice, certainly USAID and state, all into a common uh, forum to have a conversation specifically focused on stabilization, some kind of stabilization working group. And we've already seen sort of embassies changing some of their structures and business practices in line with in, in line with the principles that are laid out uh, in the SAR. Um, now, with regard to the Global Fragility Act, um, you know, again, here I, I think I would echo um, what, what Liz very uh, aptly uh, summarized, which is that we see this as a tremendous boon to the foundation that I think the SAR has set in terms of reinforcing um, our, our methodology, our, um, the way that we conduct analysis together, um, the way that we look for synergies to ensure alignment of um, programmatic approaches with USAID, 
uh, in the lead on uh, programming, state, of course, the overall lead on stabilization and Department of Defense um, supporting sort of across the board. Um, so we think that the legislative mandate and the imprimatur uh, from Congress will certainly um, accelerate and reinforce the principles that are in the SAR. Um, and I think hopefully that we'll be able to also apply um, you know, many of the lessons, some of, uh, I think, the mistakes, the, the bumps in the road um, that we've experienced through the course of the SAR, that we'll be able to apply that um, as we move forward with implementation of the, of the GFA. Um, the last point um, maybe I can make, and I think this tracks um, with uh, some of the, the recommendations and observations that have come out in the very good um, CSIS uh, report, uh, the policy brief, I think, um, that's just come out. Um, I just want to acknowledge that, um, that we are, wherever possible, trying to catalog the challenges, um, the very real obstacles and barriers that we face in terms of moving the SAR forward, moving the GFA forward. I mean, I think the first thing that, that which I can say, which is a positive note, is that we are trying to acknowledge these, um, some of these obstacles and then develop solutions to overcome them. But some of those relate to, for instance, the flexibility of funding mechanisms. Um, now the GFA in part um, does help to address that by the creation of certain funds. Um, the continuity of policy and personnel, uh, the role of outside spoilers, um, and so those are things that we're going to continue to try to address um, as we uh, as we further the implementation of the SAR and GFA. Um, and so, um, yeah, we're excited. I think, notwithstanding some of the challenges posed by by COVID, uh, and I couldn't agree with you more as well, Liz, um, that we need to um, I think begin thinking beyond just the immediate health and humanitarian response to COVID and think through in a more coherent fashion, the second order or third order effects on economies, on social um, landscapes and on, on peace and stability. Um, but I think that over the coming year, uh, it's gonna be an exciting time as we, um, as we learn further lessons and advance the implementation of both of SAR and GFA. Great, thanks so much, Etan. Um, let's go back to, to Michelle Piercy from Chemonics um, to, you know, think about these, these issues from a field perspective. Um, you have considerable uh, experience across multiple conflict settings. Um, what were some of the most effective ways um, that you've seen in terms of trying to balance agility, um, the, the need for, for flexible tools that Etan was just talking about, but also for the need for accountability? Um, certainly on Capitol Hill, um, but also from um, any U.S. administration wanting to ensure that there's appropriate return on investment, rigorous uh, monitoring and evaluation. So um, I think Etan mentioned, um, you know, some of the challenges that have to do with getting everyone on the same page about, a, about strategy at the post level and above. And I think the key to being accountable and also responsive to the direction that we get from above is definitely focusing on alignment. So that, may, that means for us, uh, making sure that our local strategy marries up to the goals that have been set for us. Uh, most of my experiences with USAID, but I think Commodics experience more broadly, had worked with different government partners, making sure that those, those connect right from the ground level. Um, 
And really as an implementer and as a chief of party in the field, I find that normally I'm sort of the final gate to make sure that a proposed activity, uh, however valuable or worthy um, and however designed, well-designed, still is consistent and true to that next level of policy. Um, and that's one reason why it's really important that um, the implementing partner and uh, the, the relevant agency are really in lockstep about shaping that policy. Um, we certainly don't determine it from our level, but you know, with a typically large local staffs of experts who are well-trained, who are very connected to the local context, it makes a lot of sense to make sure that uh, those opinions and insights are fed upwards. So we're, we make sure that we're aligned at a strategic level. Um, the next step is always just being ready, right? Agility is about being ready. Um, since my first um, USAID project, I would say that the risk management, compliance, vetting, um, audit, proofing, that kind of stuff, um, those requirements have roughly doubled uh, in, in the years that I've been working on the, in this field. And so that means that you have to be very well organized well ahead of time. You need processes in place, you need suppliers identified, you need procedures down because, and this is really important, um, to be agile, you have to be able to exploit windows of opportunity. And in unstable context, those windows are gonna open at very short notice almost by definition. So programs respond to windows of opportunity and then individual activities respond to windows of, windows of opportunity. And you have to be ready, even an activity that is potentially normatively um, a negative, sorry, not an activity, an event that is potentially normatively a bad thing, negative development. Could be, there could be a window there for you to work with somebody um, to do some messaging or like get something out there, but you can't do it if you're not ready. And so the um, second part of being ready is really about um, having very good situational awareness and um, staff on the ground, excellent staff who know what's happening, who can report back up to you quickly. That's actually one of the great strengths of the OTI model that um, we've touched on in a lot of the um, in, in a lot of the policy work that we've been doing on, um, on uh, the SAR, because if something happens, you find out about it and you're ready to move quickly. So alignment, preparation, definitely. And then I would also add learning and evaluating. Um, in my opinion, good stabilization programming must be iterative. That is to say, you need to try something, see how it works, pause and reflect, adjust if necessary, and then realign. And um, that's really key to staying responsive and accountable. Perfect. Thanks so much for that, Michelle. Um, and I do want to remind our viewers um, that this is an interactive uh, event and encourage you to please go to www.csis.org um, and click on the Ask Questions button. Um, we'll have an opportunity to engage with your questions in part two of this virtual event series next week on May 12. Um, next, I'd like to go to Liz Hume from the Alliance for Peacebuilding um, to delve a bit more in, into the implementation of the Global Fragility Act. Liz, you touched on this um, a bit earlier in terms of where you see 
um, great opportunity for, for the GFA um, intersecting some of the groundwork that's been laid um, by, by SAR implementation. Um, and I know more broadly, you've thought and, and written quite a bit about um, what should be the future course of the GFA. Can you talk about some of those core recommendations? How can we get this right, um, given the significant mandate from Congress? Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, we have written a lot about it. We have had a lot of consultations, both inside and outside the government. And I, it, I was talking with one of our lead authors on uh, the Global Fragility Report that we put out to get peer reviewed and will go out again uh, at the end of this week, beginning of next week. And some of the things we said were, these concepts are so simple. Why do we have to keep writing about them and talking about them? Uh, and I, you know, for people watching, I, you know, especially in uh, meetings I've had in Washington, I think everyone's probably heard this story by now. Bangladesh, you know, not saying it's a stabilization country, not saying it should be a prevention country, but when you looked at it, the U.S. government's own analysis said this is really a democracy and governance issue. You have you have to be putting your resources into these programs. That's what's driving instability, violent extremism, uh, the corruption, the, you know, the government is not effective, legitimate. Um, okay, so when you go into the strategy of what the US government is doing, a teeny tiny amount <laughs> Uh, programming and funding and work is being done on that sector and the vast majority of funding goes to health and education uh, and so you see those indicators going up spe you know, spectacularly but you're also seeing instability and violence going up uh, and when you talk to the other uh, programs let's say health uh, you know they don't want to talk about conflict they don't you know uh, they want to talk about, you know, what are they doing to save lives and how are their health systems being strengthened and the work that's being done. Uh, you know, they don't want to layer on conflict prevention or conflict sensitivity or so first and foremost, this has to be a multi-sectoral approach. You have to take a look at a strategy and, you know, regardless of what funding account is there, you have to say, this is our analysis and what can we do to you know address those drivers of violence of instability of extremism what what can we do and and you know nobody wants to be the jerk in the room and say you know stop health programming stop education programming and we're not saying that we're saying how can all of these programs be part of this larger strategy that isn't so siloed as we just saw with the you know with the covid strategy um, you know even talking about terminology as you know the stability these are secondary these are third they're not they're not secondary they're not you know they're not third order uh, and so I, I think that that's really an important piece michelle you talked about the learning and evidence we as a field are terrible uh, you know, and even overall saying, you know, are we, you know, is, are, you know, is this country getting more stable? Is violence going down? Are we building sustainable peace? We really, you know, we don't 
we can't say that and we don't measure it based on what we're doing. And if what we're doing is not having that impact, then do something else and be adaptive um, in real time. And, and, you know, I can't stress enough, you know, being adaptive, you know, understanding what's working, what's not working and why, and why are we failing? And that's okay, you can fail. Um, and understanding that we have theories of change out there that are not based on any evidence, um, that actually there's evidence out there that they don't work, uh, that some of them actually might cause some more harm, but yet we go back to the same things over and over again. The field doesn't replicate what it knows and doesn't apply, and we don't disseminate our lessons as well. And that's where I'll give it to the health field. They do that. And if they don't publish on what they've done, someone else will. Uh, and so we as a field have to get better at that. Um, and, and so that, that's a really, I mean, for me, those are some of the really key pieces, the political risk. We have to be able to take it. Michelle, you said that the requirements have doubled. You were being generous. I mean, they have, you know, beyond tripled and quadrupled in terms of procurement, uh, in terms of vetting with the material support regulations. You know, we are tying our hands. We go into any situation, you know, with both hands tied behind our back. Um, and, I, and I just want to go back to that, uh, the legitimacy and the diplomacy. You know, what makes the SAR so important? Because under the GFA, you will have three, uh, at least three SAR countries and at least two or, or regions and two uh, prevention country slash regions. And that's the minimum. Without, uh, without diplomacy and the diplomatic approach woven into the strategy and into the discussions, this will all fail as well. So that uh, I'll leave it at that. There's so much more to talk about. Um, one other thing I actually do want to point out in terms of what is needed for good implementation, we need to have better consultations with uh, the people that are living, working, um, and from conflict-affected and fragile states. Uh, they need to be part of this implementation and part of this discussion. And so that, that's, that's, that's one area. I know COVID makes it that much harder, but we have to do better. I think that's a fantastic um, point to end on. Thank you so much to Liz Hume from the Alliance for Peacebuilding, Michelle Piercy from Commodics International, and Etan Sontag from uh, the Department of State for joining us today um, for an excellent discussion. Um, this is only part one of a two-part uh, virtual series that we're doing on pursuing effective and conflict-aware stabilization. Um, please encourage all of you out there, our viewers, um, to log on to the event website um, and click on ask questions um, coming out of today's rich discussion. Um, but we will also have that link live um, through the week. Um, so as, as you're letting these uh, um, issues marinate in your brain, um, if you'd like to submit questions in advance, um, my colleague Errol Yabuke will be hosting uh, the next uh, part of this series um, with the same three speakers on May 12th. 
from 10 to 11 a.m. Thank you so much for joining us today and hope everyone stays healthy and sane.